Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. We're going to kick things off this week talking about Huawei. Huawei had uh, a big week and in many ways a very bad week this past week. So what happened this week is that the U.S. government put Huawei on what it calls the entity list. And that means that companies in the U.S. have to get special permission in order to do business with Huawei. Now, a lot of folks in the U.S. may not know much about who Huawei is, uh, but they are a giant telecom firm uh, in China, and they are very strong in Europe and other parts of the world, such as the Middle East. And there's been a growing momentum of concern and suspicion that the Chinese government might be able to gain access to the telecom infrastructure of the U.S., because of a relationship with Huawei. Huawei answers back that uh, they are an independent company and they would never do that and they've won the trust of so many other governments. So the upshot of this, uh, this ban is that Huawei makes uh, PCs which use products from Microsoft and Intel that would be cut off. They make Android phones, which of course use technology from Google. And perhaps the biggest potential blow to them is that a lot of their server equipment, as well as their smartphones, rely on designs from a company called Arm, which is a UK company that licenses designs to virtually all the smartphone makers. But even though it's a UK company, Arm says that its technology has US origins. So they are telling their employees to hold off on business with Huawei. So uh, clearly there could be very serious implications for this Chinese firm, but there could be implications for US businesses as well because Huawei is, is a pretty major customer. And Sean, I think this shows, is, is very consistent with what we've seen uh, from the administration in general on, on trade policy where they are willing to endure losses to business on the US side in order to inflict harm on 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 the Chinese side. Yeah, and obviously this a tech cold war, as Tim Culpin at Bloomberg called it, has been going on for a long time. Not so much, perhaps, from the U.S. front, but China for a very long time has restricted what U.S. companies could do in China, whether it was Google Search or Facebook or other services. And so now you're seeing the U.S. bond in kind, first with ZTE, now with Huawei. And it does seem like it could spread from here and move to other companies. A lot of it is centered around the trade war that's been ongoing and been a key focus of the current administration. And it's interesting that, you know, my background being an economist and having spent some time here, we actually export a lot of things of value like Android operating systems, like Apple iOS, that don't show up in our trade statistics. We essentially export those for free 
they're incorporated into a uh, into a piece of hardware. And then if we re-import that hardware, we are importing the full value of that hardware, even though much of the inputs of that is coming and originating in the United States. So there's a lot of dynamics at play here. And I, I do think there's the potential that this could spread to other companies. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are already discussions about how the next targets may be a number of Chinese video technology companies uh, because of concern that surveillance video might be sent back to the Chinese government. But at least in terms of Huawei, you know, you, you may ask, why now? What is it about now that the government has chosen to really step up the uh, these these measures. And part of it is because we are on the cusp of launching 5G networks here in the U.S. And the thought is that 5G networks are going to be far more strategic and deliver far more critical data than cellular networks do today. And Huawei in particular is very strong. I would say most, I, I haven't heard anyone argue that they are not the most advanced uh, company in the world when it comes to 5G infrastructure. Uh, so a lot of the talk up till now has been about Huawei uh, having access to, to networks or in Europe having access to the core strategic part of the network. Uh, and there, there may be an argument by the government that now is really the time where we have to enforce this ban uh, because we believe that Huawei is on the verge of being positioned to really tap into a key part of the what will become a key part of the national infrastructure. Foreign Policy had an article that said the 5G fight is bigger than Huawei, and I think that's also something to be mindful of. So yes, it does look like some of this centers around the, the battle to be first out the gates and, and have a commanding role in 5G deployment while also maintaining some national security issues. And, and we've seen the current administration in Washington use national security for all different kinds of, of mm. things related to tech and, and beyond. So it isn't too surprising, I suppose, that we are seeing this being thrown under a, a national security banner. And for Huawei's part, uh, they released a statement uh, today to the media from their founder saying that they did not believe that the this ruling was going to hobble them, that the expectation seemed to be from the statement that they would find a way to continue to work with U.S. companies, and they thanked U.S. companies for being such supportive partners over the years. They talked about all the U.S. consulting uh, resources that they've they've used over the years. So they are certainly not in panic mode, despite a lot of coverage saying, "Oh, you know, with this arm ban, uh, this ban on using arm technology, that uh, they're not going to be able to to make anything." You know, forget about smartphones, even though they are the number two smartphone company in the world by volume behind Samsung, 
They recently passed Apple, even though they have virtually no presence in the U.S. Really, their core revenue comes from their network infrastructure. And the concern is that if they can't access ARM technology, then they would uh, really run into serious problems trying to advance network infrastructure equipment. But yeah, and they use a lot of. Sorry, go ahead. They use they use a lot of the ARM infrastructure in their server products and and other things. To to your point, so it has pretty big implications on that front. The thing that I've always found interesting about this argument is, okay, if you're going to keep Huawei out of your networks, it's not like a U.S. company can step in. You know, we really don't have uh, network infrastructure companies. Uh, telecom network infrastructure companies uh, at that level in the U.S. Uh, So the business would probably go to Nokia or Ericsson, uh, which are, of course, European companies. Uh, And there, of course, may be a much higher degree of comfort with that uh, for, for a number of reasons. But again, it's not as if it's a it's a U.S. you know American developed company, the the argument for keeping Huawei in is that they are far ahead of of Nokia and Ericsson. So the trade off is okay. Maybe you're going with companies that are based in countries that you're a lot more comfortable with, but the trade off is that you're it's probably going to be a, a slower path to uh, to ramping up. 5G here. In certain markets, that will be true that have heavily utilized Huawei infrastructure in the past. And I think the risk of seeing retaliatory measures against companies is U.S. companies in China is also concerned. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's going to be economic, uh, there are going to be economic implications for U.S. businesses regardless. Uh, and it's it's also cons- consistent with uh, the administration's policy to accept uh, economic uh, disadvantages to various U.S. interests if they feel that they can have uh, a an even more adverse impact uh, on the uh, China's economy or on the the balance of trade. Today, there are some smaller carriers in the U.S. who have used Huawei equipment o- over the years. They're not in the, the big carriers, but some of the smaller ones. And so there is a bipartisan bill now in Congress to approve, I think it was $700 million to uh, help those carriers essentially rip out their Huawei equipment and replace it with technology from some other company. So I think that's just an example of the lengths uh, that govern the government, the U.S. government is is willing to go to to try to fully expunge Huawei uh, from from network infrastructure here. If they can also influence companies outside of the U.S., like this ARM agreement that that's gone into effect, or this this ARM move that's gone into effect, then it will have a much more significant impact on Huawei. So w- about six to seven percent of Huawei's revenue comes from the Americas, while Europe accounts for about a quarter of its overall revenue. So if you can dent that, then you can also put a much bigger um, 
halt on its forward motion. And, and so far, the U.S. government seems to have made limited inroads with that. Uh, I believe Australia decided that it was going to uh, ban Huawei from its 5G infrastructure. But it seems that most of the European countries or EU uh, are still very comfortable uh, with Huawei's participation. Uh, yes, more and certainly more to come on that front. So we'll see what falls next week as this story will continue to unravel and more chapters will be added to it. Now let's jump into our lightning round. First up, Amazon is working on a device to allow it to measure human emotion. It seems like every week we get rumors of some new product that Amazon is working on and it always seems to scare the general public and be in an area where they don't want them necessarily working on it. Uh, it, it Makes a lot of sense, I think, for other things that that Amazon is doing, and, and they're a great experimenter. They're always trying new things. Getting your innermost thoughts uh, transmitted back to uh, the Chinese government is is bad, but getting them transmitted to uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos is uh, is okay. You know, the 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 key thing about this product is the wearable nature for me. It's easier to see how if it has access to certain skin responses or your heart rate or your blood oxygen level or other things that sensors can manage today, how they could make inferences uh, about your emotional state. But the other thing about it being a wearable is that it's something that potentially you have on you all the time. And Amazon has really been looking for a way to circumvent the phone when it comes to Alexa, because they, of course, don't have a real smartphone in, in the market. So with this wearable, that might allow them to have people say, hey, Alexa, any time that during the day, any place they are, uh, they're really going to need to get to that point uh, if, if they want ubiquity far beyond the smart speaker in your home. Amazon clearly not the first company to work on measuring emotions. It's a holy grail for a, for a lot of companies and something that people are trying to crack. And you can see how it would feed into a lot of what Amazon does from advertising to retail sales to what content they recommend. I agree with you completely, Ross, that getting into the wearable space could be a good approach for, for Amazon. It could allow them to... Um, to circumvent, as you noted, the smartphone. And over time, the smartphone has evolved. What used to be a largely telephony, no longer a telephony device. We do a lot of other things on that. As we pair watches with those phones, we're doing more on the watch, so more at the wrist. So you could easily imagine that having a, a bigger role in, in the grander scheme of things. I, I still think messaging is important and Amazon also has no real messaging platforms. So I think that's something they'd have to figure out, but you could easily put a 4G or eventually a 5G SIM card in there and get, get access to a lot of what you get on your smartphone today. Yeah, I think the cellular angle is required. Second up, Rotten Tomatoes, which is owned by Fandango is introducing a way to verify your movie 
ratings. So it's uh, similar to what we see with Amazon. They will validate that you actually saw the movie through the Fandango system, and then it will show that your when you leave a review that it's verified, meaning that you actually saw the movie. And clearly, they're doing this to combat some of the dynamics at play here where movies are receiving a tremendous amount of reviews in their opening weekend. And if they are bad, it is enough to dissuade individuals from going and seeing them in the theater. And so they're trying to keep the platform relevant and accurate at the same time, trying to provide a little bit of additional information. So I, I think it's interesting to look at kind of the gamut of ways that different companies deal with consumer reviews. This is an interesting approach because it would only be people who have seen the movie who would be able to review it, which ideally is what you want. Actually, you can still review the movie. It won't show up as verified. Oh, I so see. So it, it is kind of like what Amazon is doing then. Yeah. Okay. Still, there there are some other uh, approaches out there. We were talking about Yelp earlier, uh, which doesn't verify, at least today, uh, whether you've patronized the business that you're reviewing there. On the other hand, while the star ratings may be suspect, people do tend to go into a lot of depth on their Yelp reviews in terms of what their experience was. So that tends to lend a, a bit of credibility there. And on the other end of the spectrum are reviews from the uh, app Wish, uh, which is uh, an e-commerce site that imports a lot of stuff from China, where you'll see many, many reviews that say something like, uh, just got the package or uh, looking forward to this. Um, you know, it's, it's clear that there hasn't been a lot of real experience with the product. And uh, that's, of course, where the, the real value comes. So anything to improve the, the credibility uh, of the reviews really, really helps. I would personally would like to see a filter to only allow uh, the, those kinds of reviews. I think the same thing could happen in Yelp, where you have to show your receipt in order to leave a review. As you've noted, Ross, often with those Yelp reviews, it's not just the food they're reviewing, but every aspect of it. So it's not just the, always the star rating that they receive, but it's all of the additional commentary that's provided. I, I think one of the struggles is these reviews, while left in a moment, last a lifetime because shelf space scarcity doesn't exist on digital platforms. And so you leave reviews up there for a very long time. Uh, I know that I've talked with many small business owners who have bought businesses. And when they buy businesses, they inherit the Yelp scores that exist for that business. And it's impossible mm -hmm. to have old Yelp scores removed even when new ownership has come in and, and taken over the organization or addressed some of the issues. And so I think all of these platforms need to think about how we deal with reviews over time. And the same can be true with movies. We've seen some movies that are panned when they first come out and over time become popular cult classics. You can imagine that the reviews may not keep up with those cultural shifts. And the, the other thing with Rotten Tomatoes is, of course, they have two different kinds of ratings. They have the professional critics score, 
and the consumer rating. So the critic score uh, at least helps to provide some counterbalance to the consumer reviews, although in my experience looking at Rotten Tomatoes scores, the audience score invariably tends to be higher than the uh, than the critics score, uh, but that's probably to be expected for more popular movies. So Ross, your son has been in a couple of movies now. Uh, did have you for the movie? Is it is it different when you actually have more more uh, skin in the game? So it, it is kind of an interesting story uh, in terms of what happened with Rotten Tomatoes uh, for the best known movie my son was in, which is The Greatest Showman. And that movie uh, did not have a great opening weekend. Uh, and the critic scores were uh, certainly under 50 uh, initially, I think uh, 46, something like that. Uh, so it was not certified fresh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but over time, uh, you know, as more consumers went to see the the movie, uh, the the scores, the consumer scores were much much higher than the critical scores, uh, and the critic scores also creeped up a little bit. I, I think they finally did uh, surpass the fifty percent mark as as positive, but. But the movie, uh, of course, had a, a very, very long run in the theaters, uh, I think in part based on the strength of, of the award-winning soundtrack. Uh, and so it was uh, a, a lot of, I saw a lot of commentary uh, regarding the initial uh, ratings saying that The Greatest Showman was a, a proof point that Rotten Tomatoes uh, is not you know, the end-all be-all of of a determining a movie's success uh, because it has become a very popular and very powerful influence uh, in, in terms of um, uh, movie ratings. And maybe the way we've seen social networks move from things that are chronologically ordered to things that are, are more heavily weighted uh, and more influential, maybe you'll see some dynamic like that play into these rating systems, but rather in the, the most insightful reviews, maybe it is weighted by time. And so as more positive reviews roll in, then it offsets some of those perhaps early negative reviews. And I, and I think that's what Rotten Tomatoes is trying to do here is trying to offset the flood of reviews, especially when they're negative, mm. flood of reviews that come in during an opening weekend and decipher if those are all coming from people who have actually watched the show or if it's just people jumping on a bandwagon. Yeah, I think there are lessons there to be learned from how the app stores manage it, uh, where you can look at just the reviews for, say, the latest version of an app. Uh, to your point, Sean, there's an opportunity there to do some chronological slicing. More to come on that front. And for our final story, Ross is going to tell us a little bit about a new device called Playdate. So this is a very unusual little product. Uh, for some time, there's been a, a lot of question out there of whether we'll ever see another successful portable game console uh, in the wake of ubiquitous smartphone gaming. Uh, of course, Nintendo, which has had far and away the most success in that space, uh, is now starting to bring out more games for smartphones 
in recognition of uh, the opportunity there. And so the approach that uh, it's actually a software developer is doing with this product is that it is a very, very thin, very, very small product. Uh, I believe it has a 2.7 inch display. So a little bit larger than say a smartwatch, typical smartwatch display. And uh, it has very simple controls and one certainly unique one, which is a crank, a little tiny finger crank. Uh, it does not provide power to the device, but it's, a, it's an in-game control. And it seems that they have lined up a few uh, respected developers. So uh, the idea is to have something inexpensive uh, and uh, super portable that can be a diversion um, for perhaps when you're not on your smartphone or you want to use your smartphone for something else or save the battery or a number of other scenarios. But uh, it certainly represents some fresh thinking, uh, even if uh, ultimately it could could wind up as a novelty. And I think we'll see more iterations around you know what what to do with hardware and how to how to change it. Well, that's a wrap for us here at Techspansive. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to rate us wherever you downloaded this podcast. Subscribe and look for a, a new episode next week. Again, I'm yes, Sean uh, Dubrovac. And, and also uh, verified listeners only, please, uh, on, on the reviews. Right. Uh, I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. And you can find more information on the website for our podcast, which is Techspansive. And you can uh, see transcripts of recent shows as well as other links to valuable information. Until next week, I'm Sean Duberbeck signing off.